Hey folks, it's Natalie. You're listening to Critical Care, a show about games, community, and the reasons we play. This is episode 72, featuring Sam Machel, half of indie game studio Sand Gardeners, and co-creator of games such as Dark Kitchen, Brownie Cove Cancelled, and Memphis Bubble Land. Enjoy! I am Sam Machel. I live in Plymouth in the UK. I primarily am a writer and an artist. And in my art practice, I think writing and reading is the focus. My pronouns are he, him, and I am half of the studio Sand Gardeners. The other half is Colin Leduc, who is the programmer of the duo, but what we do is mostly a 50-50 split, I think, in terms of input. I could talk about how that started. Yeah, that'd be great. So I feel like back in 2015, I was running a Facebook webcomic. Um, I was kind of into these Facebook pages that posted art that was made in like Microsoft Paint or if not like made in Microsoft Paint, looked like it was with these kind of hard pixel edges and limited colors to an extent and this kind of semi-naive digital look to them. And I was running a kind of ongoing webcomic called Brownie Cove that used this style and it didn't have like a continuous narrative, but it did have like kind of ongoing continuity of a kind and I was making mini paper zines and posting those out and I made a little twine game uh, about this hotel in the universe that I kind of wanted to revisit or like keep visiting and Colin I think was following the page and just messaged like oh hey I'm a programmer do you want this twine game to be not terrible? Because, um, <laughs> you know, it's not, it wasn't very good, really. And I said yes. And so we started working on what would have ended up being a point and click adventure game version of this world that I'd started making in the twine game. Um, so he was living in France at that time. And we had to develop some kind of like remote workflow. I'd never worked in games before. And he suggested that we might want to try doing a game jam as like a way a way to try out a small amount of every part of the game making process. And uh, then we've kept jamming ever since, basically. That's really wild that it kind of just spun off randomly from uh, like a Facebook message. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's something about web comics and the web comic community that seems to like inspire these sort of serendipitous collaborations it's like a a, it's a type of like internet art that i'm really pretty ignorant to on the whole but it's it's always very interesting to hear kind of like these connections and like people having this history with web comics as kind of like a inception point before moving on to like games or you know tv shows or whatever i guess because you can be quite frequent with what you're putting out so you might have a small like reader base but they might be following you for quite a while you know and maybe that builds up some kind of 
not like um not like intimacy but an understanding of what the other person is getting at or i think i was 17 and 18 when i started it so i was also figuring out like what i wanted to say and how i could do that so i feel like you would be able to see that happening live if you were following it you know Mm -hmm. yeah there's like very little distance between like the creator and the audience which they often kind of feed into one another of the comics being reactive to the fan base and situations like that which you know can go any number of directions um but is is, is very fascinating to me as someone who's like just missed that whole that whole well i guess it's it's not a done era there's still tons of web comics but it feels like it's it's had its moment for sure yeah yeah they've kind of they kind of consolidated a bit more into like specific like platforms um more so than maybe just being like a thing that exists on the internet and gets passed around on forums but in any case uh did not <laughs> did not uh prepare a whole a whole webcomic uh interview um though maybe maybe in the future but yeah i'm very excited to talk about your games um what you've been working on with colin you put out quite a few quite a few of them um and i i did my best to play uh, almost all of them i missed a couple which i'm pretty sad about because they look really cool but speaking of brownie cove um since kind of mentioned that as the webcomic and then you've made uh several games set in that universe and they uh were kind of a good jumping off point for like a lot of the uh core themes i sort of noticed throughout a lot of your work of this feeling of of traveling and being kind of not stranded but like located in like a unusual maybe somewhat antagonistic place thinking about the brownie cove flight is canceled i believe it's called uh where you are basically just left in an airport for six hours of real time to to kind of wait it out which i i, I quite enjoyed it's a very ostentatious uh choice <laughs> um but also also uh games like memphis bubble land which are guided virtual tours of this location or uh, dark kitchen where you're working as a gig worker in this uh, very hostile and, and evil city so yeah i wanted to to kind of talk a bit about firstly kind of how you kind of approach location design i feel like you have your games have a very particular way that they kind of make the character feel very small and um, kind of helpless within their environments. I, I wondered if you could speak a little to how you approach that. So early on, I would say the core drive for that was that I was quite, in, I'd, at the time I'd read Mark Auger's Non-Places book and I'd also started reading Mark Fisher and this idea of non-time. So we did a lot of games kind of set in these non-places like hotels or mostly hotels. Also motorway service stations were a common thing and airports as well. And I think uh, one of the things about these places is that they, everyone within them is kind of anonymous to each other. And the places have little character of their own. So I 
liked to think of them as places that create a certain interiority or level of introspection. When I started writing games, I think, and wanting to include choice-based text, a kind of focus on interiority felt natural. I think every game we've put out was done in a jam game, so there's a limit done as a jam, so probably nothing more than like 72 hours. And I think that puts necessary restrictions on the kinds of stories that could be told. So like not many characters, not a kind of larger plot. And so most of the games are very small in textual breadth, if that you know makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so the places came from that, I think. The idea of like a non space is quite quite interesting to me. It's it's not something I'm I'm familiar with as a term. Um I know people use terms like like liminal spaces, which have kind of been played out a bit and Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> made it made a little <laughs> um the specificity's been lost. Uh but there is there is something I think very compelling there, especially kind of within these games which which feel like they're informed quite a bit from existing under capitalism and the degree to which spaces uh feel increasingly kind of hostile to the people within them there's a there's a need to kind of move through them uh in like a functionary way but you're not they're not inviting to sort of linger in or or gather everything's very very atomized yeah, they're 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 like machines to push you through them. They're not like uh, places to linger in, you know. Yeah, I I think Dark Kitchen is is probably my favorite of these. Um, the one I found kind of the most uh, successful in terms of this this theme, because sort of the way that that game works is that you know you're on a a some kind of motorcycle and you get like food orders on your phone which send you you know to different locations and then you bring those back to the, the central building um in the town but there's like you know no no people uh sort of walking the streets everything's very generic in the sense that you know these buildings could all just pop up next to each other um and it's just kind of like a functional space but you still have to spend all of that like real world time like driving between them there's like this really interesting juxtaposition between the anonymity of the space in the sense that like nobody really would choose to live here it's like a very inhospitable place but also you have to spend so much time just like moving down streets and and taking corners like it's a very prolonged experience even as it feels like it doesn't want you to be there i must shout out a close collaborator of ours, Moth, who did the all of the environments for Dark Kitchen. So that city is her her work. To to me, that city kind of like feels like um like a AAA video game like environment, like um like Arkham City or something like this, where um there's just like a a grit to everything, but everything is also like a a funnel. I feel like AAA environments, um, at least five years ago, were very much like little theme park 
the tractions that you kind of move through in this really choreographed way. Um, and that's the feeling I get from the em- environments in, in Dark Kitchen. Yeah, I could I could certainly see that in the sense of like really stripping the flow of play in those games down to its barest essential of look at the dot on your mini map and then go to that point and get the item and then look at the other dot and bring it back to the other place. You know, all of the extravagant set dressing kind of stripped away. But yeah, it's it's a quite quite a cool, pretty unsettling environment, I will say. Uh, I'm usually pro spoilers, but I think this one actually works or benefits from from having a bit of uncertainty or, or mystery going into it. Um, so I'd recommend people play it for themselves. It's it's not super long, um, but there's some unpleasant stuff uh, in the latter half that sort of makes it even more of a, a place you don't want to linger in. Yeah, the, for me, the, the game kind of is held up by a moment that we hope the player has where they realize uh, something to do with what's going on uh, through a very key and unavoidable visual cue that happens throughout. That's what I'll say, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was curious, uh, before I move on, kind of from talking about the environments, another thing that I kind of noticed in a lot of your games is there is a... The way that movement works is often very limited or kind of obfuscated like talking to dark kitchen again like you know you're moving through a 3d world but instead of like you know driving your bike around you're just clicking dots on a mini on like a google maps view kind of um being driven there automatically um and i was curious uh kind of about uh aside from like maybe technical limitations if there was like things you found particularly compelling about like taking that control away or you know making it kind of more esoteric than you know a lot of games would probably choose to i think one of the things we maybe this will come up again later but i feel like one of the things we have in the front of our mind when we're thinking about our mechanics is this um question of agency and like it's oh, this is such a huge. Uh, this is a really huge <laughs> uh, thing for me to start talking about. Um, okay, so Anna, uh, in Anna Anthropy's book called Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, she defines like games as being experiences defined by sets of rules, which is a really like beautifully broad definition because. Uh, it could include things like filling in your taxes or being stuck in traffic or experiences like this. And um, she talks about playing in the sense that a a bridge is designed to play a little bit in the wind so that it doesn't collapse. Uh, And then gaming is more like trying to take control of a situation to your advantage. So this is a little academic, but, you know, like... Maybe the most foundational game for me was Kentucky Route Zero. And in a lot of interviews, um, Jake Elliott talks about how the characters in that world are suffering from the effects of capitalism. They're in debt. They are in these situations where they have little agency over their lives. And so the choices that you make through the branching dialogues of that game are not 
ones where the characters can really control the situation. They're more like ways that you can express like your curiosity or your emotional connections to the other characters and things like this. And I found that like really fascinating. So in all of our games, which have text choices, we like try to come up with new ways of not allowing the player really to like have mastery over what's going on, but different methods of, you know, choosing around, playing around within that. And uh, I think limiting like the extent to which a character can explore an environment is like a part of that. It's also, it allows for more like control over the visuals in a kind of like cinematography sort of sense as well. Yeah, that is, that is kind of interesting to uh, situate that level of, of control or the ability to kind of modify your environment sort of within games that are, you know, in conversation with the experience of living under capitalism. Um, you know, Dark Kitchen, you, you can't get off your bike and choose to just run around like you, you're making deliveries. That's like all that you really are capable of doing and you kind of have to keep doing it because that's your your role or in um browning cove is canceled kind of being you know stuck there at the whims of you know massive airport that uh is like on the surface kind of meant to be a pleasant place to like be laid over but is like very empty and like you know there's it's just like a uh, requirement of, of having this like infrastructure in place that like okay well we have to have chairs here but you know we don't really have to give them much else to uh you know make this a place that people are gonna have to spend you know hours maybe maybe more than that um just to get on with wherever they're going see so, yeah, I, I do find that like restriction uh quite interesting uh, a lot of your games also have like non-endings which i find pretty cool um where they just kind of start to loop or you know you get stuck and just kind of have to to force quit the game this sort of feels like a sin though like <laughs> i don't know if it's i'm it's nice to hear something you mentioned that as like a a good thing or like a a, a thoughtful thing about them i feel like that's a well, to a to a, an extent, I feel like it's a failure of ours in a in some kind of way. But I also do like when uh, like novels never like end well. It always feels too soon. I feel like a all kind of writing feels like it ends too soon. There's no like sentence that can be fully conclusive somehow. And uh, films like can feel that way but you always get like the credits which feels like a, a moment where you have to understand that the end's there do you know what i mean by that i don't <laughs> um kinda i mean i i have like you know my own my own feelings about novels ending but i i do think there is like something interesting in playing with the technical capabilities of games having non-endings like you you like functionally can't do that with a novel like you're you gotta run out of pages or you know the film is going to end because you know it's it's a movie and, and that's how movies work but there's not like 
there's not like any real reason other than I guess like like computing power but for the most part that's kind of a non-issue as well um, for games to just kind of be left in this limbo I I remember playing one uh, that I I found quite interesting Um, it's from this anthology called Gardens of Extro Um, it was called uh, The Alley Hustle by Leroy Lewin Um, and that game ends in like an infinite loop of you being stuck in a labyrinth that you've been like imprisoned by in by um some kind of artificial intelligence and it's like it's very cool merging of like themes and systems that it's like quite simple in execution but i i think is like a a very clever choice to to reinforce that sense of just being trapped somewhere indefinitely um and i and i think your games are kind of playing at um often similar themes so it it's like a you know having that lack of a of a resolution feels appropriate given very few of your games are like traditional narrative setups or or you know there's not really in conditions uh, i'm not sure if any of your games have have those um i guess the cat that this cat that comes in through our window is probably the closest thing that comes to that, which is a like bitsy short story, uh, which is quite nice, but uh, a little different than a lot of what you do. Yeah, that's that's super different. Um, also, uh, our game Exhaust Lands does have a win condition. Um, you have to explore around this kind of wasteland, um, talking to people and um, making friends with them and uh building up a kind of arbitrary faith stat which you need to like beat the approaching like mythical fascist army and the game tells you at the beginning that you should like return to the base when you think you have enough to win um but you can't really like keep track of how much you have and you don't know how much you would need um so there's there's like a win condition there but it could ruin your game because I think it, I can't remember, I feel like it quits the game if you lose. Um, so you could like make the mistake of thinking you were done when you weren't and then have to restart. Yeah, that was that was one I would, uh, did not get around to, but I'm very curious. I, I'm also quite amused by, uh, you have some images from, uh, I guess this was presented at EGX, and uh, the setup is with a. I don't. I don't even know what kind of controller this is. It's some children's toy. You've, I guess, somehow managed to hook up to your your game. Right. Yeah. So um, Colin and I had exhibited at a previous EGX with a game called Between Stations, which is a game about watching TV. And we showed it on a CRT with a custom controller attached with like a dial and dialogue choice buttons. And we found that like super successful, like a big, a big kind of breakthrough moment for us. And we wanted to do another alternate controller setup. And yeah, this game Exhaust Lands takes a bit of time and it's also very possible for you to drive off into the kind of infinite 
nothingness and be stuck there and the map is quite big and hard to understand so we thought people probably wouldn't want to play through the whole game on at a convention you know you only want to spend i feel like i only want to spend 10 minutes or something unless it's a game i specifically want to see so we like wanted players to have to like kind of work together asynchronously by like adding to a paper map but we also wanted to slow them down a bit so they couldn't control the game very well so yeah we like modified that <laughs> child's toy with a accelerometer so you kind of had to tilt it like a wheel yeah it's kind of clunky to play but it meant everyone was starting with the same level of ability to navigate this world and so they'd be more dependent on the notes that had been left by previous players i mean that kind of goes to what you're talking about with like making the movement be kind of intentionally alien but for like different intentions but yeah it's very it's very cool i I like the idea of like making your control steam esoteric to kind of subvert a crude knowledge of how games work kind of put you back in that like sense of naivety and if you play a bunch of games you're eventually gonna probably have a general idea how most of them control cool so yeah um just to move on a little bit uh so i don't get too sidetracked on games i haven't played but i was kind of doing some research for just one of the things that really stood out to me and i was very interested to talk about was this connection between two of your games memphis bubble land which we've discussed is the diet guided tour game and then kitchen for one which i'm uh, not actually familiar with what the game itself is but i know it has been uh lost for technical circumstances it's not playable anymore and i found i found something interesting there between memphis bubble land which only exists for like limited real-time tours that i'm assuming you run that people have to you know be there at the time and you know be able to be one of however many seats on the on the on the bus uh to be able to go on the tour so there's like this degree of of inaccessibility kind of baked in and then kitchen for one which is now just like lost media in a way though not not by design i was just curious kind of if your experience with kitchen for one uh informed the design of memphis bubble and like if you were thinking about you know having lost this this one game um and now it's just kind of like something that some people have experienced and other haven't um, when when sort of thinking about this game that will sort of by its nature be ephemeral and eventually kind of regarded to you know youtube videos and anecdotes totally I, th- I think so like kitchen for one was lost because it was basically like a search engine you would interact with it as if it was a parser based text adventure where you give it verbs and nouns and it would search a kind of database of videos of pov videos of people cooking and we lost all of the videos in a some kind of event Um, and the so you just can't really play it anymore because they were all being streamed because it was like super huge amount of videos so you kind of carry a lost media object around like a dark souls black mark or whatever you know it's like a kind of curse and i think 
it was in our minds. Uh, Colin had the kind of core idea for Memphis Bubble Land, though. He, he'd been to see like a theatre play, and I think maybe we'd talked about it a, a long time ago, but he had the idea for like a virtual theatre where you would book in for showings that would happen like once a week or something, and you would be seated in a auditorium next to other players, and then you would watch this, whatever would happen. And that maybe even that could be like structured like a, like a season of different plays that appear in this theater or something like this. This also, I think, came from showing games with alternate controllers at events. If you have something kind of odd and attractive to passers-by, they'll crowd round and well, this will happen on any game really. People will crowd round and watch the person playing. And for our games where you're making narrative decisions, but sometimes narrative decisions that require you to step out of your comfortable self or make a moral decision or at least like a choice that reflects on something about you emotionally like that would create this like you could see this happening like this conflict in the player who is being watched and I found that super interesting to see and yeah so all of this kind of combined we sort of just wanted to make a game that you know we've got a small audience and we've it, we thought it would be nice as well in a way to like bring together this small audience for a moment of a kind and also be able to see people uh, interacting live with something we've made and a good way of doing that is like scheduling it so people know it's going to happen I, I feel like when you make video games you're super aware of the preservation problem that games are not super eternal uh, flash games are like were a huge thing for me and it's so hard to like find any now. You're aware of this preservation problem and the world can feel like that too, you know, like climate change is obviously like a, a big source of angst for me and has come through in the work a lot recently and this feeling of ephemerality to everything around. So all of that fed into the game where there's these there's imagery of this desert, you know, pyramids, so kind of like ancient stuff, images of like failed empires, like big toppled statues and things like this. And yeah, it just, it felt right, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting for me to think about, you know, limited time game events aren't like anything new. Like, you know, MMOs have existed for decades now and, you know, Fortnite puts on concerts uh, I'm not quite sure what it is that feels different about something like Memphis Bubble Land. Maybe it's the scale, um, how it's, you know, it's much smaller and kind of by design, it's not trying to be like massive spectacle that like someone DJing in Fortnite is where it's, you know, every trying to get everybody to play at once. This is like a very controlled, small thing. And also, you know, being... Uh, a small game is like something you could very easily not know about until it's already happened and then you know you're just kind of on the outside looking in uh, i have i have not been on one of these tours yet uh maybe i'll i'll catch one in the future if you decide to do it again 
we do we do plan to do more we just have to like turn the server on i think <laughs> you know yeah no definitely it, it's very it's it's very small scale it it didn't it's not very long it was funny to us as well to make a multiplayer text adventure game you know cuz doesn't really make sense as a fit and the way we did this was by making the choices are all kind of polls basically and everyone makes a choice but then what happens is like the majority vote which functionally doesn't make a whole lot of difference but it's just kind of funny i feel like it's kind of funny to do that and the arbitrariness of it is funny as well and when you joined the game you had to click a seat on the bus as well so there's just a kind of like aspect of inconvenience to the way you can experience the world that is being shown to you on this tour like if you don't get a window seat you're just not going to be able to see as much and things like this and that's kind of how it feels in a way to like start playing a competitive multiplayer game online that you are new to or something like this where every <laughs> all these other players seem to be in a better situation than you or whatever and there's we felt like the potential for that sort of feeling just or you know you could see people's heads like where they were looking and there's there's just an a feeling to knowing other people are playing like i think it's novel for me as well it might sound really like obvious but it's like novel to do that having never made a multiplayer game before as well so yeah i'm i'm definitely intrigued by these like unusual multiplayer experiences uh i feel like there's still a lot of possibility there or that like the interesting ideas often have like a very short shelf life because they do rely on both having like this infrastructure in place but also just having other people also wanting to experience them i know one that i that i often feel very sad about having died is uh Velvet Sundown, which was like a hidden role game with text to speech that was like very janky but like weirdly expressive in like the roles it would give you and sort of the uncanny situations you would get into with other players because you're all kind of communicating through several layers of of abstraction. I don't think I, I don't think I've heard of this game. It, it did not last very long. I, I guess it was probably not very financially lucrative, but yeah, this was that kind of like exploring multiplayer games. I don't know more than being like competitive or like narrative based, having this like like expressive social element that is kind of like a lot harder to pin down, and I think can lend to itself to a lot of like really interesting experiences uh, that are kind of hard to replicate. But you know. I'm still thinking about this one game that I played like a de- almost a decade ago. So there's, you know, there's something there, I think. Yeah, definitely. And something there about that, the absence as well. Like I'm a big Wii U fan and playing a new Wii U game is always like tragic because a pop-up will come up about how Miiverse isn't active anymore and you just can't help but think about how good it was and like how much that really did add and uh the feeling of emptiness that <laughs> like fills its place it just gives this like really melancholy quality to all of these like very uh cuddly 
games, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the state of games preservation feels increasingly dire in a lot of ways with, you know, how many, like, large, like, ROM sites are being shut down and how it's, like, pretty challenging, if not impossible, to archive a lot of, like, contemporary games because of how much they rely on, like, external servers and technologies that are never going to be made uh, public. Um, and, there, and there is something, like, very, very tragic there, I think, of just, like, how much culture is going to be just lost for the sake of of financials and like you know holding on to your proprietary content doesn't seem to be like a huge push to to like confront that either it's like it's it's very niche anxiety i guess that is just kind of doing what it can to you know hold hold whatever pieces are not being seasoned assisted and it's like it's sad because it's not as if it's never happened before, like with the kind of amount of early film that's been lost because it was like super volatile or, or whatever. Yeah, definitely. It is kind of like a history repeating itself. I kind of, I do, I do like the potential that's there as well. I feel like the problem needs to be addressed and like resolved, but this is like connected with Colin's idea of the theater game, like the way a kind of like iconic version of a play will like live as a new art object that's kind of a bit more ethereal and it's like the way people talk about it and no one will ever be able to like witness it again, but um, it still exists in this new form. And, you know, there's kind of, and that happens with games that are never going to die like minecraft you know and you're like your minecraft story is the one and you tell that story to other people and that that kind of like becomes what that game is for you and that other person do you know what i mean by that like yeah definitely i i think about this a lot with concerts as well like the live experience is the art piece in, in as much as, like, you know, there's the performance, but there's also the observance of the performance and, like, you know, all the different factors that go into that. Like, you know, what's the venue like? You know, are you feeling unwell that day? Like, what's the crowd like? Like, there's so many different factors that kind of contribute to it, uh, which is it's kind of a little analogous to some contemporary multiplayer games. But, yeah, I mean, you do get stuff like The Grateful Dead that have, you know, like a mythology built around live shows like that is significantly bigger than like any of their just like normal music i feel and yeah this like sense of being a part of of something that is like that is like going to end and that you are like one of only a handful of observers too i think yeah it can be very powerful as like an emotional experience it's kind of like a tricky thing because there's like kind of both of those existing at the same time and i feel like with a lot of like life service games and stuff there's not really that's not really the um being cultivated so much as it's just like a inevitability of the business model yeah i mean it it sucks as as a practice for sure and we did get some upset comments over the game feeling as if we were trying to create artificial uh, scarcity or like something like this which I understand and it would like super frustrate me as well and as like 
this is comparable i think like as a fan of some artist filmmakers it's frustrating that their films aren't viewable anywhere you know like maybe you'd have to email them and they would send you one if they were being nice or they weren't super famous or whatever you know and that really sucks but i, I mean i don't really have a but it, it, it does suck as well like you know? yeah i mean that's just like the other side of it is you know you're been on the outside looking in and you've missed out on the cool thing and that's kind of just like an inevitable act of any sort of like limited performance yeah it is a kind of curious thing to kind of think about because you know you are kind of working with these these like contradictory impulses and kind of have to figure out what i guess what the intentions are of your work and like with what level of kind of exclusion you're willing to or like want to accommodate you know maybe that sounds a little bit more serious you know it's not an imperative that everybody have access to every piece of art ever made yeah i feel that as well like there's a whole lot of art i've made that no one will see right Uh, or my friends will see that i've shown them and in a way it's not really different to that and we didn't charge any money for it you know so like i don't feel like we doing insider trading or whatever you know kind of metaphorically like (laughs) yeah yeah it's like you know at 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 some level everyone's going to be missing out on on some amount of culture just because you know there's billions of humans and no one could possibly uh, be involved with all of it even if it was all perfectly archived and accessible but i do get that sense of like wanting to preserve something and make it you know something that that is like meaningful to you and wanting to be able to share that in the future or return to it Um, and there is kind of like a a sadness there when it's just like there's no way to do that especially if if it feels like it it's something that should be possible due to like you know contemporary technologies one one other thing i wanted to ask you about i know we're running up on time but i did want to discuss this a little bit uh is that uh we kind of mentioned this but a lot of your games are kind of engaged with kind of contemporary experiences of living under capitalism and like the impending terror of climate change and like the ongoing trauma of colonialism very very engaged with like the experience of living in a contemporary state and i found that a lot of these games have like a very have very antagonistic systems in terms of how they're played like maybe they're just a bit grueling to get through or they fight you a little bit or they're confusing often used to kind of emphasize whatever the themes or like political goals uh you seem to be going for and yeah i just wanted to talk a little bit about how you sort of approach uh designing these systems that are by design like a little unpleasant to play like how do you kind of balance that push against the player for the sake of his theme without it being kind of like so unbearable that you know the the experience of play overshadows the the themes you're trying to impart right yeah i mean it's definitely a balancing act like i guess one method is like to balance it with humor or something attractive like maybe an aesthetic experience that is like pleasant in a way to spend time with uh spend time in or some kind of intrigue or mystery that you that makes you want to stick with it or just some kind of like in intuitive magnetism that a thing might have and um 
I feel like that needs to be there for that. Some of our games, I don't think, did end up having that. I think sometimes we've been quite unsuccessful with being abrasive or pushing our luck. I don't think... Well, I don't need to call them out by name. I think some of them don't work as well. I think when it works, it's in a game like Unpaid Serenade, which has a kind of structure where... I'll maybe explain the game. You're you're having a nightmare where you're about to give a talk at a conference about solutions to climate change, but you don't know anything about that. So it's kind of a typical nightmare scenario where you're being asked to do something that makes you really anxious. So the first part of the game is building up this tension. You're character is having a very bad time in their head and then some things happen that are surreal or nonsensical that are frightening and make you more anxious and then when you get up on stage there's a moment I hope where it's kind of been functioning like an absurdist joke you're uncomfortable and then you get this like sudden moment of release that I hope is kind of like so silly and funny, it's a bit joyous. Um, and the thing that you're being asked to do uh, mechanically is so hard it's almost impossible, but hopefully in a kind of funny way. So I feel like that's the, the most successful we've been at being, if not unpleasant to play, like difficult in an unfair way or confrontationally designed against expectations of being able to be good at a game and beat it. Yeah, Unpaid Therenade is is definitely uh, one of my favorites. Uh, really uh, captures the anxiety of public speaking quite well. And yet the, not twist, but like the mechanical conceit of, at the end uh, is, is a quite clever way to, to convey that. Uh, this is tying back into what we were saying earlier, but I feel again like this is a kind of expression of political disenfranchisement where you feel as though you have very little way of controlling your own life under systems, different kinds of oppression. I don't think I want the games to be didactic or like super explicit with what they politically mean for me. Like, I'll talk about it now though, but like, you know, Unpaid Serenade is like most obviously about being about public speaking, but for me it felt like a way of thinking about how I felt as though the rhetoric of like fixing climate change was being like put upon younger generations and trying to imagine like how impossible that is for them or for us, you know, or like what can you do in that situation but flounder you know that feeling was the kind of motivator for that that is one of the things that did stand out to me um you know i've played a lot of independent games with very transparent and um, often didactic political intents which are not always unsuccessful but i do feel like there is something about a lot of of how games choose to systematize political strife or oppression that comes across as a little trivializing or like it's making 
the problem feel maybe smaller or more easily rectified than it is. There's like a sense that like, you know, within this video game, you can, you know, solve capitalism. You can, you know, bring about the socialist revolution, which is, you know, like a fun fantasy to have, but I don't feel like it really, there's like um, a degree of like just sort of simple wish fulfillment that I, I don't find as compelling or useful as games uh, that sort of are about like the experience of insistate now and kind of being just squeezed on all sides by oppressive forces and really feeling like you don't have that autonomy and that like your ability to affect change on your own is very minimal and somehow doing that in a way that doesn't just feel nihilistic which is its own challenge of course yeah absolutely i think i would love to see games that offer this kind of yeah like i know like a proactive approach to like leftist politics like this i feel like um previous guests of the show low policies um co-open is like a really nice example of like a game that offers ways forward without being kind of overly utopian and yeah, I remember reading something about, it's like a kind of crazy political hot take of like, all video games are kind of like right wing by default, as in their like form and the way they work. And it was talking about the way video games kind of grew from things like Space Invaders, which is like, I mean, kind of crudely, that game is about keeping out, like <laughs> keeping people out and uh or like, you know, games are so much about contesting over space or things like this. And so, again, talking about this anaanthropy idea of like play, like a bridge playing in the wind, I feel like playing, uh, subverting like the video game form as it has grown up is a suitable way of expressing this feeling of like living within these systems and figuring out on a kind of individual single player basis you know like how we're dealing with them i'm bringing this idea up i don't know if i agree with it i find it interesting to think about yeah i've de I've definitely read or maybe it was a video essay that was saying something similar uh it, it's very very provocative i don't i don't think i agree with it necessarily i think there is certainly something to be said for how most art created under capitalism or at least like in the u.s is like going to be neoliberal by default just through unexamined assumptions about the world um and that most of the people who have the resources to create art like as a hobby or career are like not typically the like you know starving leftists or you know politically revolutionary sort um or if they are they're going to probably have to be forced to, to funnel that through something that's amenable to people who do not really care as long as it sells copies so there is there is certainly a degree to where a lot of the like default politics of not just games but you know games especially because they are kind of often more reactionary it feels like than a lot of mediums just because of the uh, stakeholders evolved.
but the like default position being if not conservative then at least like neoliberal and you really having to like be very deliberate when trying to push at those boundaries to make something more progressive or like more informed by like leftist theory and yeah there's there's not a lot of <laughs> not a lot of examples i can really point to that i think do this that well or at least not on like a a large scale there's obviously lots of, of smaller games that i think are are quite interesting and informed like this like uh i would include your games in there but you know I, after you reach a certain point of of commercial viability you kind of have to like contend with a lot of other forces which you know, prevent you having holding on to those political ambitions but yeah that was a, a long-winded <laughs> rant from me to start wrapping things up though where where can people find you on the internet if they want to play uh, your games, play Sand Gardeners games? Uh, where whereabouts are you? Sure. So sandgardeners.itch.io. We just put a game out like last week called Feast Work. It's pretty good. So go have a look at that. And I'm on Instagram at Sam Behind Glass, which is where I post. Um, at the moment like poetry and visual stuff as well awesome yeah did not did not get to talk about feast work but i did play that one is it's quite a quite a fun uh little game very cool visual design to it so yeah so to close things out i like to have every desk guest share something that they've enjoyed recently or that's inspired or given them hope uh just something cool that uh, you'd like to, uh, more people to know about kind of in things if you have something you'd like to share yeah for sure i want to shout out the wii u i think <laughs> i think it was misunderstood i think maybe it was misrepresented but it's so good and i've been having so much fun playing it recently i think like nintendo land and game and wario are like literally some of the best games ever made like I, I can't if you can get a wii u and a copy of nintendo land and some friends around you should it's just like it's gaming at its best i really feel <laughs> i there's just something like so great about weird hardware that gives you novel experiences in different kind of ways like the wii u is good for like asynchronous multiplayer it's like so good for that it's good for kind of immersion i I played um star fox zero recently which reviewed really badly but i really enjoyed a lot i felt it almost kind of felt like um like vr like the way you have to use these two screens like felt super immersive in a super surprising way yeah that's my that's my it was giving me hope at the moment for sure Awesome. Yeah. There I feel like there's been a bit of a Wii U reappraisal recently. Or at least I know a couple people who have recently gotten back into it um and sort of uh singing its praises. I have never have never owned one myself, but have I've been curious about it. Um I've been having a renewed love affair with the DS, which has similarly sort of like maybe mourned for the state of modern consoles all being like uniform bricks with nothing particularly mm. novel about them i'm with you there I, i'm with you on the ds it's like I'm, i've been revisiting that as well and 
it did some stuff really well. It's just like really nice graphics. Yeah, yeah. The specific 3D graphics chip that it has, I I really enjoy. Or like, I don't know if this is actually how the, the, the DS works, but there's definitely like a, a shared technical style between most of the games that is like very, very unique and I find quite charming. Uh, and then you just have like dozens of just really incredible 2D games that just don't really need a lot of processing power but the screens are like just high enough fidelity that you can get a lot of a lot out from them yeah great console maybe maybe the best it's a really it's a hard hard decision but i think it's definitely up there yeah i think i think the the big companies they'll they'll have to come back around to two screens eventually it's just it's just the future yeah yeah if we get a we get a foldable ps5 maybe yeah, or I my my um crackpot theory is that like Switch Two will allow for Switch Ones to be used as like a gamepad. That would honestly rule. That would rule if they if they backdoor and reinvented the Wii U. Right, right. In a way where it's not like a hard sell anymore, because like lots of people already have a Switch lying around or whatever, and like oh, it'd be so good. Hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, until this future that this definitely real future comes about. Thank you so much for coming on, talking about your work, sharing your love with the Wii U. I will definitely keep an eye out for future games that you and Colin um, and Moss release. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Critical Care is produced by me, Natalie, with music by Desired. You can find Desired on Bandcamp at desired.bandcamp.com. I'm on Twitter at Boo, it's Natalie. And you can keep up with everything critical related at critical.com. If you'd like to help keep the lights on, consider supporting the show on coffee. Until next time, take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>